0: It's 1208, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So glad to have you with us. I have an apology to everyone. I was a sporting flying Dutchman this week. All right, so this weekend, Friday evening, my nephew, 6th grade, he plays in soccer team. Friday night, went to watch his soccer game. They lost. Saturday morning, he was playing in a soccer game. I'm a good uncle. Went to watch the soccer game. They lost. Saturday night. Went to see the Brewers play, the um, Pittsburgh Pirates. The Brewers lost. And then yesterday, I went up to Lambeau Field to watch the Packers play. And No, the Packers didn't lose, but I know for a lot of people, it feels like they, in fact, lost. By the way... We are up. We live stream the first couple segments of every day's show. You can go to facebook.com slash 620WTMJ. Even though the Packers lost, I am still sporting the color. Packers tied. I'm still sporting the colors. All right. Here's my quick takeaway from the game. And again, I, I'd leave the, the, lots of the detailed analysis to the, the people who do that for a living. But, um, the, the Clay Matthews penalty was not. The referee missed it. The NFL should apologize. And I think these referees that miss big plays like that, I think there needs to be some degree of accountability. Maybe you sit them on the blocks. Um, do something because that was a bad call at a key point in time of the game. Having said that, uh, the, the Packers had more than their opportunities to win. Even in spite of that, it shouldn't have come down to that. I, I say this with affection. Devon House simply can't play cornerback anymore. I mean, I was I was actually watching, as soon as he came into the game, I was watching Minnesota Vikings just run past him. He can't run. I can't play quarterback in the NFL either. So, you know it's just they they need to recognize that and devon house had a great career and i understand he's a great presence in the locker room he just can't run fast enough anymore to play cornerback and as soon as he came into the game minnesota saw that and exploited him if you have a cornerback who's just not fast enough anymore well those things are going to happen third this is my just again uninformed analysis the pass rush, and you can really see that. Um, you can see it on TV, but you can certainly see it when you're at the game. The pass rush, which is kind of non-existent, and I, I think actually for most of the game, <clears throat> most of the game, the secondary held up reasonably well. But if you're not going to be able to rush the passer in this league, you're going to get killed. And you know, you, I, I'll leave it to smarter people than me to figure it out. But they're not going anywhere unless they improve their pass rush. That said. I mean, they came away with a tie. Minnesota, I think, is one of the certainly the best teams in the conference. Uh, Minnesota, Minnesota fans think they had chances to win as well. That kicker of theirs, boy, like I said to Steve Scafidi, I bet you he's going to be selling cars in some car lot in Minnesota starting about tomorrow. I mean, it's he was horrible. So for everybody who thinks, well, the Packers, you know, they let one get away, I guarantee you, there's a lot of Vikings fans that feel the same way. Which brings me to where I want to start the program um i i go to about two packers games a year years and years ago i I used to share season tickets with um three other guys and then when they they were club seats and they were pretty expensive and then once they put in the seat license thing that the guy who had them said that, that he just didn't want to keep them anymore so gave those up then for a couple years I had access to tickets in the new the new seats in the end zone through my late wife's law firm, and so I, I went to probably about four or five games out of eight a year. Um, now I, I I don't have access to those tickets anymore. So what I do is I go to a couple games and typically I, I either buy tickets in the secondary market. Or occasionally, I'll go to a charity event and somebody will put good seats up for charity and I'll I'll bid on them. Well, yesterday at halftime, Jerry Kramer went into the Packers, you know, that ring of honor there. It was a great halftime ceremony. I'm a Jerry Kramer fan. My close friend Evan is a huge Jerry Kramer fan. We went to Canton, Ohio to see him go in. And and so we decided we were going to go to the game. Early season game, great weather. I admit I don't consider myself really to be a fair weather fan, but... The truth of the matter is, as the season goes on and the weather gets colder, well, it's just, to me, it's more fun to be there on a great sun drenched Sunday afternoon. I also like the noon games because. You, you get home at a reasonable hour. Even the, the three o'clock games, you're probably not going to be home till nine or ten o'clock at night. I mean yesterday even hitting a horrible accident on 43, I, I was still home by six or six thirty. So you, you still have time to do things in the evening. So great weather, arguably the biggest home game on the schedule, the Minnesota Vikings, twelve o'clock noon, early season very, very desirable for Packers fans. So we, we bought tickets in the secondary market and had interestingly no trouble buying those tickets. So we get into the stadium, we, we go sit in our seats and we were in a row, we were in the club section and there were only five seats in, in the row I was in. It was kind of in sort of in a corner right above where the tunnel where the Packers come out. And one of the first things the guy who's sitting next to us says is, well, I'm glad it's Packers fans that bought the tickets. If it wasn't, I was going to call up the guy who has those too. And I said, no, no, we're, we're Packers fans. But I will tell you this in all honesty. I don't know how it looked on television, but in the stadium and walking around the stadium earlier on, I it was at least 25% Vikings fans at least 25% Vikings fans. And if you wanted to say to me, no, Jeff, it was closer to a third, I wouldn't argue with you. I mean, it was not quite like what happens when the Cubs come to Miller Park. Not quite. But a lot, I've, I've been going to games at Lambeau Field for a long time. I have never seen anything like it to the point that at one point in time during the fourth quarter, you had almost, I'm going to say a quarter, but it could have been a third, of the people on the stands cheering for the defense when the Vikings were playing defense. It was an amazing takeover of Lambeau Field. And what happened? It was because Packers fans chose to sell their tickets. I mean, those tickets are all sold out. They chose to sell their tickets en masse, And Minnesota Vikings fans in general gobbled them up. Now, I I don't want to be hypocritical about this because I bought tickets in the secondary market too. But the fact that so many fans chose to sell their tickets tells me that, that there's an issue here. And I think, and by the way, that was a Milwaukee game. So you only have two games. Milwaukee fans have only two games that they get a chance to go to. They're the gold package things. And a large chunk of the Milwaukee fans decided to sell their tickets. 414-799-1620. That is the Akinet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. This isn't a problem, in my opinion, with the, the Packers organization. I have one thing to say, and that is shame on the Packers fans who en masse decided to sell their tickets, figuring that, hey, there's going to be a lot of demand from Vikings fans, and we're going to make money doing it. 414-799-1620. Frankly, it was, as a Packers fan, it was embarrassing. And I don't think the Packers can do anything about this, but there were a lot of fair-weather fans who decided, we're going to try to make a couple bucks instead of supporting this team, and shame on them. 414-799-1620. That is the Accudent Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We are back to discuss, and again, we are streaming the segment of the program: Facebook.com/slash620WTMJ. If you were at the game, what was your reaction with regard to the Vikings fans? How they they sort of organized and orchestrated a mini takeover of Lambeau Field, and I think it is an embarrassing commentary on maybe the fifteen or twenty thousand Packers so-called fans who decided to dump their tickets in the secondary market. 414-799 on a perfect day for football in October, arguably the most important home game on the schedule. 414-799-1620, we discuss in a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 1216, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Twelve nineteen, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay, I'm up at Lambeau Field. I, I don't want to talk about the, the game. I think both sides were kind of lucky to come away with a tie. I, I swear, and again, and there's no question in my mind, at least a quarter of the fans were Minnesota Vikings fans, maybe as many as a third. Those are Packers fans from typically Milwaukee, because it was a gold package game. This was there was no excuse not to go. There, there really wasn't early season. Twelve o'clock noon game. Beautiful weather. Arguably the most important game on the home schedule. And about a quarter to a third of the Packers fans. They had almost eighty thousand people at Lambeau Field yesterday. So that means fifteen to twenty thousand people sold their tickets and sold them to Vikings fans. What the heck is going on? Let's start with Marion in Fort Atkinson. Marion, you're on WTMJ. Hi. Hi, Marion. Hi, Mary. You got to turn down your radio in the back there.
1: Okay. Hi, hi. I am really surprised this is your first topic. I was at the game also. We've been going over thirty years, maybe close to forty years. I've never seen that many um, from another team fans there. Right. And I think what makes me sad is for all the people on the waiting list that wait and wait and wait and wait and would absolutely love to get season tickets, but they can't because of these other people that don't care and just tell them to make money.
0: Yep, yep, yep. Well, look, and, and I know I I didn't buy the tickets my friend did, so I'm not exactly sure how much they cost. But, I mean, we, we probably pay two times face value, maybe two and a half times face value for the tickets. And I, I'm a capitalist. I understand making money. But at the same time, if – if that's what you're all about, I mean, maybe the Packers really do need, do need to figure out a way to cull their season ticket list from the people who are trying to make money versus the people who are true fans.
1: Right, right.
0: No, no. Now, thanks and for calling. Oh, go what ahead. What
1: else I think was sad is it was against the team that, you know, Brett gets, or Brett, Aaron gets hurt well, you oh, know, yeah. last year. No, I no, mean, what a slap in the face.
0: No, thanks for calling, me. No, look, I, I mean, I understand. Look, if this if this is a Sunday night game in December, I mean, I understand why people would maybe want to dump their tickets, but that's not what this was. This was, I think, when you look at the schedule, this was probably the best matchup on the home schedule. I seriously wonder if this had not been a Milwaukee game. If this had been a Green Bay game, would, would as many Green Bay fans or the people that have the second season tickets who are there, would they have decided to sell out as well? And yes, that's what happened. I mean, that's, I mean, who knows how many people actually sold their tickets? Like I say, we're Packers fans. We bought them on the secondary market. I mean, was this a situation where I don't know, 30-40% of the people who have those tickets decided, gee, going to the game is less important than trying to make a few extra dollars? 414-799-1620, Dick and Grafton. Dick, you're on WTMJ.
1: Jeff, even
2: though I live in Grafton, you might remember I was born and raised in Shawnee, 25 miles from Lambeau Field. Mm -hmm. I told the screener I have only one way to describe this. Unfortunately, the term is Milwaukee fans. Hmm. Uh, These are the same people who. Uh really were upset when they they ended the, the the Packer games in county Stadium and they got shorted one game when the they felt they got shorted one game when the uh season expanded and uh, I think that this is this is something you're gonna see more and more of like you say what's it gonna be like in when there's a cold weather game for the Milwaukee ticket holders
0: uh if
2: they're going to show up.
0: Well, I mean, and they, so do you do you agree with my premise, Dick? That if this had been if this had been the first game of the year, or the third, or the fourth game, not one of the Milwaukee games, that there would have been fewer Vikings fans, fewer fewer of the Green Bay ticket holders would have sold.
2: I, I go to three Green Green Bay ticket holder games a year, and we will see from time to time fans from other teams, sure. uh, even against Chicago. There will be, but it will be. Handfuls of them, Yeah. handfuls of them, and and when the other team scores a touchdown, you can barely hear them. Right, yeah, but, not like, but not like you said it was Sunday.
0: No, it was. I mean, it was. It, it was. I mean, it was amazing. I wouldn't be using this to lead off topic if we we weren't just. We weren't, I, I mean, I was just absolutely stunned in the section I was in, which I, there were club seats in a corner, two guys in front of us were Viking fans. There must have been 10 or 20 people, you know, who were Vikings fans behind us. But everywhere you looked, it was purple, at least a quarter, maybe more. And I, I just, will there be that many Packers fans when they go to play the Vikings? I don't know. I've never seen anything like it. Tom in Door County. Tom, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon.
1: Good afternoon. Yeah, I agree with everything that's been said. It, I was there yesterday, and I've gone a lot of games over the years, both Green Bay and Milwaukee tickets. It was so disappointing that all those people chose to capitalize on the biggest yeah. game of the year, one that was so important to Green Bay. And I, I, it felt like a third of the stadium. The noise was just overwhelming, just unbelievably disappointing. Yeah, something it, – those it, – like the lady said, all the people on the waiting list, what's wrong with people? I mean the Packers are gonna I don't know what how or how they do something about it, but but that's that, Well I, I don't I don't was, know what was, they
0: can do. I mean we, you know I mean I don't know
1: either. It was just so disappointing. I couldn't believe it that the faithful and I understand there was a Brewers game and their independent race, so I you know, I I'm, I'm assuming a few of the Milwaukee people chose to to go that direction instead, but I don't know how they could. They get three games a year. And the Packers bent over backwards the second and the fifth game, so it's early weather. There's a noon game. Both games this year are great games. And so you get good traveling both ways. Early season unbelievable. No it it was
0: now do you Tom, do you agree with my premise too that if this were not a Milwaukee game? Now there would have obviously been Vikings fans. Green
1: Bay fans there would have been a spattering of purple, but nothing like that at all. Oh. I've gone to a lot more Green Bay games over the years. I've season tickets for years, and you'd never see anything like that. I just don't believe that would happen. I, I'm so disappointed.
0: No, thank, thanks for. I did I I was I was just shocked. And again, I I don't want to repeat myself. But there's this point in the third in the fourth quarter when the game is starting to get close, and the Packers have the ball, and all these people are standing up and they're cheering. They're cheering for the defense. And I mean thousands and thousands of them. It was amazing. We continue the conversation again. We're live streaming the segment. Facebook.com/slash six twenty WTMJ. I I'm just. I am disappointed. I think it was shameful that you had all these Milwaukee season ticket holders who decided we're going to, we've got a chance to make money. We can double our money. We only have two games, but what the heck? Let's sell them on the secondary market. Shame on them. 1226, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ twelve thirty seven, thirty-seven. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Following a disappointing series defeat for the first time in weeks, the Brewers look to get back on track as they welcome the Cincinnati Reds to town. The hunt for Brew October is in full gear. Bob Ueberfeld gets us started. Six five tonight. Yeah, it's uh, it, you know if if the Brewers don't don't pass the Chicago Cubs and win the Central Division, you are going to look back and they they just. Pittsburgh has the team's number. It's just for for years and years, the Brewers just, whenever they play Pittsburgh, it was just kind of like, okay, they're going to win. Now it's just pretty much whenever they play Pittsburgh, there's a good chance they're going to lose. It's just kind of tough. So hopefully they'll be able to get past that. Cincinnati is in town. Nothing. uh, A three-game sweep would be just Just what the brewers need. Coming up about 105, less than a half hour from now, we're going to talk about the big news over the weekend involving the Supreme Court nomination of Brett Kavanaugh. Now the the woman who apparently didn't remember this until until 2012, she is now coming forward saying back when Brett Kavanaugh was 17 or 18, um, he, he tried to assault her. She hasn't told anybody, no charges, but now she is coming forward. We're going to talk about what happens next, but we're going to do it about five after one, right after the top of the hour news. All right. I want to apologize in advance for the sound quality of what you are going to hear. It is a little bit painful. I acknowledge this, but there is, there, there, there is a question here. So I'm, I'm going to play you something. And then my question is going to be, can you name the sound? Now, I apologize in advance because, well, uh, you'll, you'll see. But, but here, here's the clip. It lasts well, about 30 seconds or so. Can you name this sound? Okay. 414-799-1620. Can you name that sound? Crew is lining up the calls. Let me take a quick break. When we come back, we will, we'll, we'll share it. We'll, we'll get your ideas. Can you name that sound? 1240, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay. 1243, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. What is that sound? Uh, Bubba from West Bend says, it's a freight train engine and rail cars. You can hear the bell and rail cars squeaking at the crossing. Um, Chris writes, it sounds like the loop train down in Chicago. Another text, it's a subway train and a track. Bob in Pewaukee. Bob, what did that sound like to you? A, r- a
1: regular freight train or an Amtrak, it doesn't matter, but going through a crossing.
0: Yeah. So, uh, okay. Like, um, all right. If you were if you were sitting waiting for like the 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 Hiawatha running between Milwaukee and Chicago, and you were stuck at one of those crossings, that's the kind of sound that you think that you would hear.
1: Yeah, I hear that three times a night over in Pewaukee and Heartland.
0: Okay, drive drives you nuts, I would imagine, huh? <laughs>
1: there are 105 cars. You got to wait 15 minutes sometimes.
0: Okay, all right. Thanks for the call. Right, it's all right. So that, can you can you imagine how annoying that sound would be if you if you live I don't know close to that track? Can you can you imagine what that's going to do to you? All right. So he he says it's uh, he sounds like the Amtrak train. No, no, no. It's, it's a it's a good guess, but no, it's it's not a freight train. No, it's not a subway train. No, it's it's not. I don't know the the loop trains in uh, Chicago. Carol in West Dallas. Carol, what do you think it is? I
2: think that is the hop.
0: You think it's the hop? I do. The, the new sleek Milwaukee streetcar. <laughs> I do. <laughs> okay, well, th- thanks for call. Ari. Right. She thinks it's th- she thinks it's the hop. Jason in Mequon. Jason, what do you think that noise is? Hey, good afternoon. Hi, guys. Jason. That was too easy. That's a uh, Bear's stupid flop. That's it's, You think that's the streetcar, too? But I, I thought oh, this yeah. was supposed to be modern and quiet and riding on these rails. You think that's that? Yep. You know as well as I do. <laughs> uh, all right. Thanks for the call, Jason. All right. Dan in Manitowoc. Dan, what, what did you think that sound was?
1: I thought it was the trolley
0: also. <laughs> but but how could that be? The trolleys are supposed to be quiet and, and and super sleek and efficient and silent. I mean, how how could that be the trolley, Dan? <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. All right. Th- thanks know. for the call. Well, all right. For those of you who said it's the trolley, you are absolutely 100% right. They were testing the trolley the other day, and that's some intrepid person. It's out there with the camera and the cell phone video, and that's making its way around Facebook. I'll post that a little bit later on. I'll post a link to it. But, yes, that is the Milwaukee streetcar. That grinding you hear is the streetcar going around a corner. The the bells that you hear are are the bells. Yes, Virginia, that is the ultra-modern, super-sleek, quiet streetcar operating in downtown Milwaukee. Now, there's good and bad to this. I guess the good is that if anybody was worried that the streetcar is going to be so quiet, you're not going to be able to hear it coming. Well, if this is the test run, you don't have to worry about that. Number two, I don't know about you, but it sounds to me like um, those trains or whatever the thing is running on, maybe you need a little bit of WD-40 or something to kind of grease them because it's squeaking and squealing. Number three... I know this is supposed to be a boon to downtown commercial real estate, and maybe it will be, because ain't nobody going to want to live, pardon the grammar, Nobody's going to want to live. Can you imagine living in an area where anywhere close to that streetcar thing? If that's what the noise is, Don in Pewaukee says, my God, I I, I got a train that goes through three times a night, and it drives me crazy. If this is what this thing sounds like, and again, there was somebody down there with Facebook Live. Now, maybe they will work out the the bugs on this, but yes, that was a Facebook video of the, the downtown Milwaukee streetcar, the flop, I mean the hop, as it was running on one of its test runs. Subway, train and track, Amtrak station. I mean, it. you know, one of the funny things about all this is that there's all sorts of people who live down by the Amtrak station. They've got all those condos that have gone in there, and that's always one of the big complaints, is that you've got, hey, we've got these trains that are coming in, and they make all this noise, and, you know, we've got these trains that are going back nine or ten times a day. If If the streetcar does, in fact when it starts operating, sound anything like that? Can, can you imagine? Because you're not going to be talking about 12 or 13 trains a day. You're going to be talking about, well, six, you know, however many they're running and how often they're they're going to be running. And, of course, the irony is they're not going to be carrying anybody anyways. But, um, yes, that was the test run of the 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 hop, at least as recorded by somebody with a cell phone camera. Put it up on Facebook. I'll send out a tweet on that as well. But it is kind of one of these sort of mind-boggling things that are out there. That's the new, sleek, modern technology that you're putting in downtown Milwaukee at a cost of, what, over a $100 million? Like Milwaukee doesn't have enough problems. It is 1249. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1252, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, Mike in Marquette, Michigan says, that modern streetcar sounds like the brakes on my wife's Ford Fusion. Yes, it kind of, it kind of does. Hey, a couple people are asking, are are you still doing Facebook Live? No, what we, we only do that for about the first 30 minutes or so, but you can go to facebook.com slash, slash, 620 WTMJ and you can still comment and participate. We have it all posted there so you can watch that segment there. And, um, I, again, whenever I go out nowadays, a lot of people, Say, well, we like to listen to the show live, but we also we subscribe to the podcast. So if you can't listen to all three hours of the program, but you'd like to check it out on your own time, go to WTMJ.com, click on the mobile app section, and you can subscribe to the podcast. We put it up there about 3.30 every day. We don't let my producer, Gru, leave until he's gotten that all taken care of. So, you know, you can check that out as well, and I know lots of people take advantage that way. All right, first of all, let me say this. My heart goes out to the people that are dealing with the torrential rain in North Carolina and, and South Carolina in that area as a result of Hurricane Florence. The good news was that there, there wasn't the incredible wind damage that they thought. The bad news is just an incredible amounts of water, and the flooding is really bad. As we talked about a couple of weeks ago when – We had the heavy rains, it seemed like for like two weeks, it was nothing but rain out here, and particularly in some of the areas in our listening area, and you had the the, the flooding and all that type of stuff. You need to be mindful if you are a homeowner. Typical homeowner's insurance does not cover flooding. Typically, you can get attached to your homeowner's insurance policy you can get a provision, a rider, that will carry that will cover sewer backup. Normally, it costs a little bit extra, and you have to ask for it. But if the sewer backs up, you can get coverage through your homeowner's insurance policy. You, you might want to check, if you're concerned about that, to make sure you have it. However, homeowner's insurance, as a general rule, and I think this might be absolute, does not cover damage from flooding. If you want to cover, as opposed to sewer backup... If you want to cover damage from flooding, you need to get a separate flood policy and those are issued, you know, through the, the federal government. You have to, and I I remember even though back in 2010 when, when we had all that heavy rain and we had the flooding around here, I actually made the decision. I, I went and I contacted my insurance agent and I, I got, I got a, I got a flood insurance policy through the federal government. And it wasn't particularly expensive and, and the insurance isn't great. I mean, it, it's got limits on it, but it, I, I, look, I was, I wanted to protect the house and, and so I ended up getting that policy and I never had to use it. And that's, that's fine. I don't have one where I, I live now for a variety of reasons, but the old home, I, I had flood insurance policy on it because if there was flood damage and, and I, I wanted, I wanted to be able to collect on that. Most people though, even people who live in areas that are flood prone, don't have that insurance. Here's the story. There's an estimated quarter of a million homes in North Carolina that are projected to be affected by Hurricane Florence. Okay. One way or another. They also estimate that only 10 to 20 percent of the coastal homeowners these are people who live in the coastal area have coverage through the National Flood Insurance Program, and only about one to three percent of the homes in inland counties have flood policies. So what this means is, when all is said and done, after these torrential rains, you are going to have hundreds of millions of dollars in property damage, and you're, you're going to have very few people who are insured. That that's just that's the reality because people aren't carrying the proper insurance coverage. And so there's a lot of people that are now wringing their hands. And again, I started off this this segment saying I feel terrible for the people who are experiencing this and and are going to be digging out from the property damage, but they they don't have insurance. All right, 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Again, I don't. Want to be hard hearted about this, but it seems to me that if you are going to make the decision that you're going to own a home in certainly in a coastal area, but, but even in an area off the coast where, you know, you, you from time to time will get hurricanes or you'll get just, just heavy weather. It seems to me that it's your responsibility to go out and make sure that you have the appropriate level of insurance that's one of the things that comes with making the decision that you're going to live in the coastal area so while in all my heart my heart goes out to these people who are dealing with this intense flooding and you see these pictures and you go oh my gosh you know can, can you imagine that if if you're going to live there and you don't have the appropriate insurance i guess i kind of lump that into the same category as if all right, gee, your your house is burned down, and you've made the decision that you're you're not carrying you know homeowners insurance, or you don't have fire insurance. It is an unfortunate situation. It's a tragic situation, but it's it's your fault as the homeowner, and you have to either say I'm going to accept the risk that, gee, that this hurricane can blow in and I can have all this flooding and I'm going to have maybe a total loss that's uninsured. Or what you have to do is bite the bullet, contact your insurance agency, make arrangements and, and, pay, and pay the premiums. Again, my heart goes out to these homeowners, and I'm not trying to be hard-hearted here, but if you're going to make the decision that this is the area where I want to live, I want to live off the Outer Banks. I want to live in this great area, all outstanding, but you have to know that there is a potential that something like this can happen and you, you have to, you know, take advantage of it or, or or do what you can to protect yourself. So I, I also bring this up kind of as a teachable moment because again, if, if you live in an area that is prone to flooding, you just and you think hey i've got this homeowner's insurance policy and the river rises and i my basement gets flooded out and it takes out the furnace and it takes out the hot water heater and it does all this damage don't worry i'm going to be covered chances are under a standard homeowner's insurance policy you're not going to be covered so you know you, you got to just figure out what you're going to do just saying all right when we come back in less than 10 minutes let's take on the big story of the weekend what's going on in Washington with this woman who now says decades ago she was assaulted by Brett Kavanaugh. Stick around. 1259 Jeff Wagner WTMJ. It's 109. This is Jeff Wagner WTMJ. Okay, today is September 17th. The Senate Judiciary Committee was scheduled to vote on passing on the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to be an associate justice in the U.S. Supreme Court, the vote was supposed to come Thursday, which would be September 21st. All right. They, they've had full hearings. They had over a week of hearings two weeks ago. Well, um, it turns out in July, July, two months ago, Diane Feinstein, who is the senior Democrat on the committee, gets this anonymous at the time, gets this letter from somebody saying, I, I want to be anonymous, I don't want to come forward, but back when I was in high school, I was sexually assaulted by Judge Kavanaugh, but I, I don't want to come forward, I don't want to stand behind my allegations. Diane Feinstein decides she's going to keep the letter. She holds the letter and doesn't refer it to the FBI until September 12th, all right, for investigation. So nobody asks him about this during the hearings. Nobody confronts him. This woman doesn't come forward. So clearly, this is this effort to try to say, we've got this smoking gun. Let's let's stall. Let's derail this nomination by the timing of this. All right, so there's no question that the timing of all this just absolutely stinks. It reeks of politics. But over the weekend, the woman who previously said she wants to be anonymous, she has now Come forward, so let's review the bidding a little bit about what this woman says she her name is Christine Ford. She is from California she's a professor at Palo alto University um, a registered Democrat. she has published in academic journals and trained students in clinical psychology. all right here's what she says now this occurred. A summer day in the 1980s, so as near as they can place it, they think it might have happened in 1981, 1982. This is back when Brett Kavanaugh was in high school. Her story is this occurred during a summer day in the 1980s at a Maryland house where teenagers had gathered. She claims she was headed upstairs to a bathroom when she was suddenly pushed onto a bed as rock and roll music blared. Um She told the po- Washington Post she does not recall who owned the house. She doesn't recall how she came to be at the house. She doesn't recall how the gathering was arranged. She remembers only that the house was in Montgomery County, which is outside of D.C., near a country club, and that the parents were not present. So I, I don't know how I got there. Don't know whose house this was. Don't remember, you know, what the house was, etc. All right. She says, this is her story again, that Judge now Judge Kavanaugh and a friend. She names him Mark Judge were stumbling drunk and laughing maniacally when Kavanaugh pinned her to a bed and tried to forcibly remove her one piece piece bathing suit as well as the clothes she was wearing. She says that he put his hand over her mouth when she attempted to scream. I thought he might inadvertently kill me, she said. Um, he was trying to attack me and remove my clothing. She claimed she was able to escape to a bathroom and then outside of the house when Judge jumped into the fray and sent everyone in the room tumbling. Judge, this would be Mike Judge, strongly denied the allegations on Friday. Um, he said, you know, when they were anonymous, saying that the claims were just absolutely nuts and insisting that he never saw Brett Kavanaugh act that way. After this woman goes public on Sunday, Judge repeated his denial. He says, now that the anonymous person has been identified and spoken to the press, I repeat my earlier statement that I have no recollection of any of the events described in today's Post article or attributed to her letter. So the guy that she identifies as being there said that didn't didn't happen. Um... The Post, Washington Post said she had contacted, um, the newspaper in July along with Feinstein. She said she kept the episode mostly to herself when in 2012 she mentioned it at a couples therapy session. The therapist's contemporaneous notes provided to the Post reportedly confirmed that she maintained she had been attacked by four individuals from an elitist boys school who are now highly respected and high-ranking members of society in Washington. The therapist, Ford said, had it wrong, she had confused the number of people involved in the alleged attack with the total number of people in the House House. She says she wished to remain anonymous, but she changed her mind after Kavanaugh's defenders argued these allegations were, in fact, unfair. So that is where it stands as of now. You have the Democrats on this committee saying, "Oh, we've got to delay this, got to delay the hearings, got to have, you know, we got to vet this thing out. Let the FBI investigate. Let's have a hearing. She says she's going to testify. Let's bring Judge Kavanaugh back. Um, you have at least two Republicans um, on the committee saying, all right, we think she should be entitled to a hearing. 414-799-1620, that is the Accunate mortgage talk and text line. What do you think about these allegations, and what do you think should happen now? Where, Where do we go from here? Is your opinion of Judge Kavanaugh, has it changed? Do you believe this woman? Do you believe the denials? Is this a new low in American politics? Or, hey, is, this, is it important to know whether the man who might be the next associate justice of the Supreme Court is a would-be rapist? Is it unfair to dredge some and, – and by the way, there, there's nothing else that's out there. there. There is nothing else that is out there – suggesting you know any improper behavior towards women 65 women who apparently knew him in his high school days have written a letter saying we've never seen him behave in this fashion this appears to be a complete and total one-off if it is true all right I want to have a broad-based discussion where do we go from here 414-799-1620 I'll tell you give you my take but I really, I want to, I want to hear how you react to this news. 414-799-1620. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 116, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 118, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. All right. I mean, the, the, blo- the bombshell news of the weekend was the, the woman who alleged that she was the victim of an attempted rape by Brett Kavanaugh. Um, she's now come forward. She's identified herself. She's a professor at Palo Alto University. I describe what she says happened in the early 1980s. She is unclear on details as to I don't remember where it was. I don't exactly remember when it was, but, but I know this in fact happened. Jerry in Bayview. Jerry, you're first. Hello.
3: Hi. Um, As an abuse victim, and I have friends who have been abused, so I have to tell you this. When when I first heard the story, I thought, oh, my goodness, I felt really bad for her. But now after hearing all the things she doesn't remember, it does not jive with me because victims remember so much so clearly. They don't forget. So with all these different things that she does not remember, it, it just does not sound right with me.
0: She doesn't recall who owned the house, how she came to be at the house how the gathering was arranged. She doesn't remember any of those things. So to you, right. that's a red flag. Do, do you, exactly. the, the, I, as near as I can tell, she also didn't tell anybody uh, about this for 30 plus years until it came out in a, in a therapy session. No, no comments to friends, no comments sure. to parents. Does that strike sure. you as unusual?
3: no not at all that that's very very normal for uh victims that's very sometimes 40 years even more they may not tell anybody but i the, my friends who have been abused can remember clearly where they were when it happened what happened on and on and they do not forget there's there's some things that she has either blocked out on purpose or it didn't happen so it just doesn't sit well with me so that's where it did raise red flags with me
0: okay thanks a call you know one of the thing and i well, let me let me say at the beginning. I, I I think, and it's going to be a circus. But I think what needs to happen is I think if she wants to come in and testify, she should be given a chance. I think if the man that she is accusing, not just Brett Kavanaugh, but the other one, wants to come in and testify, he should be given a chance. It's going to be an absolute circus, Um, and and I don't know that we're going to gain any closure on that, but if she wants to come forward, I mean, I think at this point in time, that's the right thing to do, and I think they should schedule a hearing in the next couple days, and let's let's go for this. I, I will say, though that one of the things that makes me skeptical and I mean, I haven't seen her testify is the fact that normally, if this is the type of behavior you find, there is a pattern of this type of behavior. Harvey Weinstein is accused of being a sexual predator. It's it's not just a one-off thing. There are, are people who say, yeah, this, this is what he did. He ran this casting couch. This is how he treated women here. There's all these different people out there. I, I don't, I, I, you know, the FBI has been doing extensive background beyond this one woman who makes this allegation. There's no Bill Cosby, classic example. If it was just one person saying Bill Cosby did this, well, then you kind of say, eh, I don't know. But Bill Cosby, there's a, a pattern of women. There's, you know, for for decades, if Brett Kavanaugh were this type of abuser and he really was attempting to rape this woman, you would think that there would be other instances of this. And I will tell you, in all honesty, that's one of the things that makes me a little bit skeptical of the claim. But I I think she has a right to come in and testify. And I think at this point in time, you have to give her that opportunity. 414-799-1620. Let's talk to, uh, let's see, Mike on the northwest side. Mike, you're on WTMJ.
3: Yeah, hi. Good afternoon, Jeff. Uh, Jeff, Just, you're Last comment about a pattern. Yeah, there should
2: be a pattern. And I think for this about 40 years later, and she doesn't recall anything but this one. Uh, it, it just seems like a bunch of BS. Plus, he's had a numerous uh, high-profile jobs. I think mm-hmm. he's just uh, – I think I wouldn't be surprised she's getting paid off by the Democrats to come up with this story now that he's up for the Supreme Court.
0: Well, thanks. Well, I, I mean, I don't – necessarily think that but i i do i i am i do think it's interesting that here you have somebody who was confirmed 13 years ago on on the you know a very high court as well the fbi has done the fbi has vetted this guy up and down for decades for different jobs there, there's there's nobody else that says this. And this woman didn't apparently say anything until she talked in general terms in 2012, 30 some years after this supposedly happened. Look, I don't know. Did, did something happen to this woman 37 years ago? Well, okay, maybe. But was it what she says? Well, then, uh, again, wh- are, are, do we have, why, I guess, look, I'm not saying I don't, I don't think she's telling the truth. I haven't seen her one way or the other. I am saying you have to be skeptical about these type of things, especially given the timing of these disclosures. This was unquestionably orchestrated as this Hail Mary effort to try to, uh, again, delay or kill this particular nomination. If Diane Feinstein cared at all about gee victims rights or anything like that she would have taken this letter and she would have given it to the fbi in july this issue would have come out and she would have been given an opportunity to testify at the hearings a couple weeks ago there's no question in my mind that this is time for maximum delaying tactics which does make me wonder what this woman's motives are 414-799-1620 steven grafton steve you're on wtmj yeah I, I the first call i thought kind of stole my thunder a little bit i think it's a
1: rape Attempted rape is way too heavy for something to happen as a 17-year-old in high school. And and I, I, personally, myself, I'm kind of tired of, and I know I'm going to be blacklisted if they knew who this was or whatever, but 40 years later, for stuff to come out, I'm just tired of hearing about it. You know what I mean? It's, how serious is it if 40 years later you remember that someone tried to take your shirt off, your bathing suit off the top?
4: And, well, and, I, and
1: I really agree with the first the caller when he said about a psychiatrist or a therapist does not make that mistake of four to two, four people or two people, that is something he was told in his therapy. And I doubt if they're going to go on to an FBI or go testify in front of somebody and say, make that mistake of four and two.
0: Well, I that mean, is it, it, is, it is right. I mean, just, I mean, she says the therapist got it wrong. Um, and she originally said it was, it was just two people, but the therapist mixed it up with four people. to I mean, I, I, again, I don't know any of those things. It is, I don't know if she's telling the truth or not. I, I will say though that this is this is one of the things, male or female, that is kind of this ongoing nightmare. Like I say, th- th- she never reported it to anybody, so there, there's nothing contemporaneous at the time. It's not like, gee, this was something that two uh, you know uh, two hours after it happened, she reported it and it was investigated and they were able to interview people. This is one of the nightmares that that people you know, have nowadays, if I were to say to you, all right, I, I, you know, I, I, somebody, if somebody I went to high school with, for example, was up for some important job and you were able to come out and somebody were to say, gee, I was at a party in 1974 and I remember this is what that person did. How do you prove it or disprove it? I mean, and that, that's. That's why you have statute of limitations on things as well, because is it fair to anybody in that particular case to say, this is what this person did in in 1974? Well, did you tell anybody in 1974? No, I didn't tell anybody there, but I, I remembered it in 2012, and somebody says, well, you're asking me where I was in the summer of 1974 or where I was in the summer of 1981? It, it's just, and I'm not saying that she's not necessarily... T- saying what she thinks happened or what her recollection might be or something like that. But how do you ever prove whether it occurred or not? Which again is one of the reasons why we have statute of limitations, even sta, especially statute of limitations on your criminal behavior. This isn't, of course, criminal. Will this ultimately derail his nomination? I don't know. Will this turn it into an absolute and total circus though? Yes, because I think. I think what has to happen is, if she's willing to testify, you have to reconvene the hearing, put her on the stand, and then, of course, you you know what's going to happen if she's grilled about things. People are going to go, oh, this is terrible. You have all these evil Republicans who are, you know, soft on sexual assault, and this is an, uh, an insult to the Me Too movement, and, of course... And there's going to be other people who are going to want to believe this because they don't want to see Brett Kavanaugh, even though he's eminently qualified, go on to the Supreme Court bench. It's just, I mean, I'm telling you, it it is a circus out there. And on any given day, it just gets to be more and more like a, a circus. And you wonder, you wonder where this is going to ever stop. 128, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 137, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, the guys who have protected the backsides of Bart Starr, Brett Favre, Aaron Rodgers, and many others who are the best offensive tackles in Packers history. Text the number 100 to 414-799-1620 for a link to cast your ballot in the latest Green Bay 100 all-time team vote. I, you know, I know there are people in the media who genuinely hate the term fake news. And I understand that my advice, though, has always been if you don't like the term fake news, stop pushing fake news. And there was just a story over the weekend which which demonstrates this. And and I've said this before. There was a four-part documentary on Showtime called The Fourth Estate. It was on the first hundred uh first year of the Trump administration. It focused on the New York Times. And I thought it was interesting. But there there's no question, you watch this documentary and the reporters for the New York Times and some of the New York Times editors, the one they featured, they loathe Donald Trump. And and there's just no other way to describe it. Now I I and I understand that they don't like having their work questioned and they think, you know, that, that Trump appeals to the people's, you know, worst, you know, the, the very worst instincts of our nature. And they don't think he's very bright and all those things. And that that's fine. But they just absolutely loathe him. And, and that comes through. And I, I think you've seen that in the coverage of the Trump administration, that it, it doesn't matter what it is. It's going to be portrayed in a negative light and viewed through a negative prism to the point that, you know, these midterm elections actually should be shaping up well for Republicans given the fact that you've got the economy, which is just absolutely booming, but yet you've got a lot of Republicans who might be in trouble, not because of anything that they've done and not because of the economic condition of the country, just because you have the resistance that hates Donald Trump, and what they want to do is they want to send a message to Donald Trump, and the way you do that is by voting against Republicans. That That's what the argument is. So you, you have this whole battle that's going on, and I think in many cases it's fair to say that the resistance is being led by some of the major players in the mainstream media. All right, that's that's all well and good. But at some point in time, there does need to be at least some constraints on things. And there was an example of what happened in the New York Times late last week, and it kind of unraveled over the the weekend, which which demonstrates clearly, uh, again, how – the media can't have it both ways. You can't rail against fake news and then keep printing fake news. There was this screaming story in the New York times a couple days ago. And the story was about how the state department spent $52,701 for customized and mechanized curtains for the picture windows in the new official residence of the ambassador to the United nations. And the, the, Spin on the story was Nikki Haley, who's the former governor of South Carolina, who is now the the ambassador to the U.N. And Nikki Haley, by the way, she's a rising star in the Republican Party. I would not be surprised if she ends up being the first female president of the United States. I I wouldn't. But but the the story, big picture of her and the focus of the story was how, okay, here you've got the State Department. They're spending $52,000 on curtains. For the residents of the UN envoy. I mean, I mean, $52,000. You know, we're, we can't get money here or there or whatever, and they're spending $52,000. Well, okay, the problem with the story was that Nikki Haley had nothing to do with this. Yes, it's true that there was $52,701 spent on curtains, but th- those were approved in 2016. During the Obama administration, it was a done deal. Nikki Haley had no say in the purchase at all, so this was something that was done before she took over before the Trump administration took over it i mean okay, it's like all right you're you're in a job. you get hired to a job and they take you to your cubicle and they give you your cubicle, and you're working there. And suddenly somebody comes in and says, why do you have this fancy phone? And why do you have this, this high end computer? Do you realize we spent $3,000 on this particular computer? What's going on here? And you say, well, I, I didn't spend anything. This was, I, this was like this when I got here. This is what everybody gave me. It's not fair to criticize me for that. It, it got so bad that after, after this story ran, the New York Times had to go public and place a correction. This is what their editorial note says. An earlier version of this article and headline created an unfair impression about who was responsible for the purchase in question. When Nikki R., while Nikki R. Haley is the current ambassador to the United Nations, the decision on leasing the ambassador's residence and purchasing the curtains was made during the Obama administration, according to current and former officials. The article should not have focused on Ms. Haley, nor should a picture of her have been used. The article and headline have now been edited to reflect those concerns, and the picture have been removed. But, of course, this is like anything. You know, you, you put out the smear, and then then you run the correction, and you, you get 100% of the people who see the smear, and maybe 25% of it, okay, see the, the correction. It's why, if the mainstream media is going to rail about the notion of fake news and bias and things like that, They have to make a concerted effort to try to get it right. And this was just another high-profile sort of example where they got it completely and totally wrong. The article was slanted. The headline was slanted. The spin of this was, here you have a Trump administration official. Look at this, 50 grand plus for these curtains. Can you believe this? And it turns out to have been, well, never mind, nothing to see here. If you want to stop being accused of peddling fake news, then don't peddle fake news. All right. When we come back, it's one of those stories that you just put your hands up and say, what do you say? Stick around. It's 144 Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 147 Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Every once in a while, there are these stories that you just you just hear about and, and you shake your head. And this is one. Today's TMJ4 had it. Mount Present Pleasant Police, this, this comes from Mount Pleasant, 15-year-old driver, arrested for OWI, had infant in car as well. Okay, so, all right, let, let's just kind of review the bidding here. 15 years old, driving, drunk, with an infant in the car. And, and the details get even more dazzling than that. Mount Pleasant Police pulled over a car that was driving recklessly Sunday night. They discovered that the driver was not only intoxicated, but was 15 years old and had an infant in the car. Police conducted a field sobriety test that the driver, this would be the 15-year-old, promptly failed. Inside the car, police say they found bottles of beer and rum. So this is like taking drinking and driving to a new level. It's not just like, hey, we're going to get drunk and then we're going to drive. No, let's drive and drink at the same time. The driver was taken to the hospital for a blood draw, then turned over to his parents. Okay, that's a real good one. All right, I'm sure the parents have control over this kid. All right, also during the test, police found an infant in the vehicle with her mother, who was also intoxicated. The mother, who was an 18-year-old, was taken into custody for outstanding warrants and a child charge of child neglect. So you've got the 18-year-old mother in the car. She's drunk. There's a 15-year-old driver that's drunk. And I think there's two other people in the car as well who are drunk as well. (sighs) I I wish I had something profound to say about this, but at some point in time, it's like, I'm telling you, you go out on the roads nowadays and you are taking your life into your own hands because, all right, the 15-year-old who's drunk and driving, they turn him back over to his parents. Well, what do you want to bet that the kid's going to be behind the wheel of a car at the age of 15, oh, maybe 12 hours or 24 hours later? It's just... I'm telling you, it's a circus out there. No question about it. All right, let's switch gears. We talked about the Packers earlier on um, in the program. Matter of fact, there's a segment up, facebook.com slash 620 WTMJ, the fact that Packers fans were selling tickets to Vikings fans, and it, I admit it, it bothered me. Here's a controversy, at least according to one woman. Um, Fox 6 had this story. The The lady, she lives in, in the Twin Cities area. She is a Packers fan. She has an infant daughter. The daughter is three months old. Who She and her husband want to get tickets to go see the Packers play the Vikings yesterday in Lambeau Field. And I'm sure they probably knew that there were some Milwaukee gold ticket holders who would be glad to sell them their tickets. But the woman, as it turns out, is a Packers fan. All right, so she starts exploring this. Okay, this is great, but I've got a three-month-old. So what am I going to do with the three-month-old? I mean, you know, he's nursing. Somebody's got to watch him. So she says, well, I'm I'm just going to – I want to take him with me. So my husband, myself, and our three-month-old child, you know we want to go to the Packers game. The Packers have a policy. They are one of seven NFL teams that require everyone entering to pay for a ticket. So seven teams say infants can't come in for free. There are a number of other teams that have height and age restrictions. Um, New Orleans Saints apparently let anyone five years old or younger to come in. The Vikings welcome any kids 36 inches or shorter, free of charge, to come in with the idea that they can sit on their parents' lap. The is, however, say, nope, that's not the way it works. Every person, regardless of age, who's coming in needs to have a ticket. And this lady says, I I just, she thinks this is wrong. She says she thinks the Packers need to, you know, reverse this policy. She says, I want them to step back and review the policy. Being a hometown team, family-friendly environment, I I know the Packers want to be. I think the kids could enjoy that experience. And I don't think I should have to pay to bring my infant child to a game. All right. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That is the AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text line. All right, what do you think? Are the Packers out of line in charging to bring a baby to the game? Uh, the lady says, "Well, you know, we we couldn't afford three tickets, so we ended up, you know, not going." Are the Packers right to say if you're going to bring a child, you've got to buy a ticket for that child, even if in this particular case the child is presumably going to be in a in a carrier? I, I would guess. 414 um, 79 or being held by mom, 414-799-1620, should they charge for infants? We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. I'll tell you where I come down on this as well. It's 153, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 155, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. All right, the Packers have a policy that anybody entering the Lambeau Field needs to buy a ticket. And there's this woman who's complaining. She said, I, I want to go to the Packers game. I've got a three-month-old. I want to take my my infant daughter with me, but I, I can't afford to buy a ticket for her. This is unfair. Some NFL cities say, all right, kids under three can go. Others say no. Um, if you're wondering, Miller Park, the, the policy they have at Miller Park, the way I understand it, is that children two and two and under – um do not need a special ticket to enter Miller Park, provided they are seating on a parent seated on a parent or guardian's lap. So if you bring a baby in, you don't have to pay. But of course Miller Park might be different than um than Lambeau Field. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty, Sally and Racine. Sally, does this woman have a beef?
2: Absolutely not. Okay. Babies don't belong at Packer Games. And you sat in the bowl seats, I'm sat in the bowl seats, I'm a season ticket holder. Those seats are not conducive to having a child sit on your lap. They're barely big enough for us as it is. Yeah.
0: Now, of course, if she had bought it, if she had purchased a ticket for the child, they would have let the child in. Sure. Yeah.
2: Which is fine if you want to take your babies to places they don't belong. That you know you have the right to do that. But if they let if they let kids say under two or under five come into Packer games for free, how many kids would there be there? There'd be tons of kids there and they'd all be in the way because the seats aren't big enough for that.
0: Well, see, I, th- I mean, thanks. I see. I actually I agree with you. And that's one of the things that distinguishes, I think, Lambeau Field, maybe from Miller Park or from some of these other stadiums where you actually have seats. Um, you know, Lambeau Field, where you're talking about people are crammed together on on bleachers. It's it's a different dynamic if you're going to have the toddler sitting on your knee or something. I I, you know most NFL stadiums don't have bleachers. Lambeau Field might be unique. I'm willing to be corrected on that. But I I understand why I understand why they're doing this. And I I, you know candidly maybe it is to discourage people bringing infants from from Lambeau Field because I I I agree. I think that I'm not sure that that's being fair to the kid. Dorothea in West Allis, you're on WTMJ.
1: Um,
2: yeah, I agree. I, you know, the Packers have a right to do that and I think it is to discourage it. And furthermore, I don't even like to see small babies at a Brewers game. If a child got hit with a baseball, it would kill them. You know, uh, it, you know in the stands of, at, uh, yeah. at, at, and up at, uh, at Green Bay, I'm a season ticket holder. And there's a lot of people around us drinking and yelling and going in and out. And yeah. Like you said, there's no room and it's just not a place for a little baby.
0: Yeah, there's no, I mean, thanks. I, especially on those bleachers, there's no room. Now I have a text here. A rule is a rule. I have paid to bring my son ever since he was a baby. He's six now and I paid to take him on Sunday. And, matter of fact, they've got a picture of baby Calvin's first Lambeau leap. I, I think if you're going to, if. I guess I understand why this policy is in place, especially, like I say, given the bleachers. To me, it it makes sense. I'm sorry this lady couldn't take her, her child or didn't have the money to buy that, that third ticket. But this is not a ridiculous rule to me. I mean, it, it if if the Packers decided it wasn't a big deal, that's fine. But given the bleachers, I understand why they're doing this. And maybe the best thing to do would be, Okay, um, you know, wait a couple years, wait till he can actually go enjoy the game and, and take him when he's five or six. It's one hundred fifty nine, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's two hundred nine, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, so very glad to have you with us. Let's um let's talk a little bit about Pre-existing conditions. Oh, Jeff, what are you discussing here? Well, what is a pre-existing condition? A pre-existing condition is a medical condition that you bring to the table when you try to get insurance. Uh, maybe it's a heart condition. Maybe it's a history of cancer. Maybe it's something more common. Diabetes, for example. You know, you have millions and millions of Americans who have diabetes. And, and the problem has always been when you're trying to figure out how to develop an insurance plan is because insurance is all about spreading the risk. The idea is you need a certain number of people who are healthy and you know those people aren't going to be making insurance claims and they're paying premiums and they're not getting stuff back because they're they're healthy. That money is then used to cover the claims by the people who are Are ill, and that's always been the battle. So, what happens if you let's say you know you you you've been working all your all your life, if you've had health insurance, and then boom, all of a sudden you lose your job, and you've got diabetes, you've got high blood pressure, you've got some more serious. I'm not downplaying high blood pressure or diabetes, but you've got some other condition. And all of a sudden, you've lost your job, you've lost your health insurance, and you can't get new insurance, so what do you end up doing? That's always been the problem. And that was the debate that we had when we were talking about the Affordable Care Act or, or Obamacare. What do you do with people who have pre-existing conditions? Now, in Wisconsin, that really wasn't as much of a problem because Wisconsin always had... You know, whether it was Badger Care or their high risk insurance pool, you know, people all who might otherwise be uninsurable always, you know, had options of places they could go to, you know, get insurance again through Badger Care or some of the other programs. Now, um, if, if you were above a certain income level, you know, it was more expensive, but, but you at least could get insurance. The Affordable Care Act came in and they said, You know, you can't be turned down because of a pre-existing condition. And the effect of that was to, uh, again, you had a lot of people who were sick that ended up for the first time deciding that they were going to take insurance. So suddenly they got insurance and you had a lot of people who were healthy deciding we don't want to pay for this. So, you know, we're not going to participate. And that's one of the reasons why you have the Affordable Care Act in as much trouble as it is because you have people who are you know sick who are taking money from it and there's not enough healthy people that are paying in so you, you always have this battle with pre-existing condition when we were discussing obamacare years ago one of the things i always prefaced the conversations with was saying hey hey look we we have problems in this system and you got to figure out a way that people who have Again, been participating in the system, the insurance system for years and years and years who do have medical problems that if somehow something happens and boom, they've suddenly lost their medical coverage, they need to have the ability to get, you know, some form of insurance coverage. You have to figure out a way to handle pre-existing conditions. And like I say, in Wisconsin, we pretty much had, had that covered. I, I think through the, the high risk pools that we used to operate. All right. The Affordable Care Act is kind of collapsing on itself. Prices are going up. You know, if you wanted to keep your doctor, you haven't been able to keep your doctor. Fewer and fewer insurers are participating. And so I think a lot of people who are looking at this are saying, okay, you've got this crisis that's coming. Something has to happen because as more and more insurers end up dropping out of this, there's fewer and fewer choices for people. So one of the arguments that people are saying is though, all right, if you repeal Obamacare, well, what about all those people who have pre-existing conditions? They're not going to be able to get affordable insurance anymore, and, and they're going to be out of luck." And that that is playing out in the governor's race right now. Governor Walker and Attorney General Brad Schimmel have been opponents of the Affordable Care Act. They believe it is unconstitutional, and and candidly, I, I think that they are right. They've been involved in legislation about this. But now the argument is, well, if you repeal the Affordable Care Act, that means evil Scott Walker is out to deny insurance coverage to people who, again, have Pre-existing conditions. Now, Governor Lieutenant Governor Rebecca Clayfish, who by the way is, is a cancer survivor, you know, she's the one. She's out there saying, "Look, this is just, this is just crazy." You know, even if we're able to get the Affordable Care Act, you know, repealed, um, it's you know, there, there's going to be something we're going to protect people who have the pre-existing conditions, we're going to make sure somebody who's got diabetes or who is a cancer survivor, we're going to make sure that they're going to be able to get some form of insurance just like they were before you had the Affordable Care Act. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I, I think if you look at all the issues that are going on with insurance, and, and believe me, I, I know for, for you, health insurance might be one of the principal factors that are there. Maybe if you're 22 or 23 or 24 years old, you don't think about health insurance. Once you start getting a family, you start thinking about health insurance. Once you start, I don't know, getting older, and you start to, I don't know, see friends of yours or family members of yours get sick, you start to appreciate the value of health insurance. I want to talk about pre-existing condition. How important is this? And are you really concerned... That some politician might come along someday and say, We're not going to provide for people who have those pre existing conditions. That's the argument Democrats are making against Scott Walker right now. I think it is completely and totally bogus. Like I say, before Obamacare, if you were a Wisconsin resident, yes, there were high risk pools that you could enter to make sure that you were going to get coverage. I'm not worried that that's going to go away. And as a matter of fact, I think the insurance system in Wisconsin was so much better before Obamacare as far as different options. We in Wisconsin would be a lot better if we could turn the clock back to 2009. Four one four seven nine is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I appreciate that being able to get affordable insurance for people who are sick who have those pre-existing conditions. I appreciate that it is important. And I think that pretty much all politicians, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, understand that. Are you worried about this issue? Are you worried that, gee, somehow we might suddenly lose insurance coverage? I actually think if the Affordable Care Act were to be repealed, whatever our politicians would come up with, I think would probably be better than what's going on now. 414-799-1620. We discuss next. 217. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. If you're on the line, please hold on. Funny. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. John in Sheboygan. John, hello. Oh, How are you doing, Jeff? Good. What do you think?
4: Well, Jeff, I'll tell you what. This is where I'm on the fence on. What I haven't heard from our governor, which would make me a much bigger believer, is tell me something that will make me feel better about myself has pre-existing conditions that if the affordable care act goes away what are they talking about
0: let me ask you this what did you what did you do let me ask you this what did you do before obamacare before the affordable care act
4: okay before obamacare i had worked through through insurance through through work you know my insurance was was through work but in 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 a case that i'm talking about my fiancee who was in her 60s she had to retire and she has on a fixed income and she has to go through insurance through the state. And we are both concerned. How is she going to afford with her pre-existing conditions? What is that? Somebody please tell me a plan so that we know that Walker, when he's saying what he's saying, mm-hmm. for all of us listening, that there is an actual something we can look at and go, okay, we get it. So it isn't the Democratic point of view where they're saying we're all going to be on the, on the bottom side of being able to afford Insure.
0: Right. Well, and I, I'll tell you what my how, John, I, I'll tell you what my answer to that would be. Now, of course, it's all speculative moving forward, because right now the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, is the is the law of the land. My answer would be that and I, I've been arguing this for years, that the concern about preexisting conditions, if, if I were the governor, I would say, hey, if Obamacare is repealed, we're going back to what we used to do. Which is either Badger Care or the, the other high risk pools that are out there. That provided coverage for, again, pre-existing conditions. And depending on what your income level was, it, it was, it was underwritten by, again, the taxpayers if it was Badger Care. I guess that's the best way I would answer it. I, I don't know that anybody's going to come out with a firm, definitive plan before the Affordable Care Act is tossed out. All I'm saying is, is I, I think it's pretty clear that whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, a or liberal or, con- or a conservative, I-, I think everybody understands that that's been one of the flaws in the insurance system, which we, again is-, is the affordable coverage for the pre-existing conditions. But like I say, in Wisconsin, I think we got that pretty right. Um, and, and candidly, we had a lot more choices for people throughout the whole universe. Before that ended up happening. And that's, that's why, at least in Wisconsin, I'm not speaking about if you're getting insurance in New Jersey or you're getting insurance in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm just saying in Wisconsin, I think that we were doing it pretty well. And it's highly speculative to say what would happen if this lawsuit ultimately succeeds. I think from the fact that anybody who's worried about losing pre-existing condition coverage, though, um, this is, see, this is how, this is how you get sucked into these entitlement sort of programs. The idea is, well, okay, now, now the government is providing this. And if the government ever failed to, you know, provide it in this particular fashion, well, then, you know, everybody's just going to be, you know, ultimately you're going to be without insurance, etc., cetera, et cetera. I, I don't think in the case of con- pre-existing conditions, that's going to be what happens. Um, I, I guess time will tell, but all I know is I firmly believe in Wisconsin. For the people who don't get their insurance through their employers, which is still a relatively small percentage, or don't get their insurance through Medicare, which you know, most people, it's either Medicare or through their employers. I don't think that anybody has to worry about losing pre-existing coverage. Moreover, I think that the benefits, the costs, et cetera, would be a lot better if we were running it like we used to as opposed to running it through the limited options that are the Affordable Care Act. Just saying. 224, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 226, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Only in government could you have somebody essentially high-fiving themselves because they spent only $350,000 of money to settle a, a lawsuit. And yet, that is precisely what is going on in the People's Republic of Madison. That the district attorney out there is a guy named Ishmael Ozan. You might remember he ran for attorney general a couple of years ago and, and just got got slaughtered. Couldn't come out of the Democratic primary. Um, but he's the district attorney in the People's Republic of, of Dane County. What happened was one of his assistant district attorneys, this guy's name is Bob Jambois, who was I think there was DA as I recall at some point in time. Okay, Jambois. He's an assistant district attorney working for, um, Ishmael Ozan. He has the temerity to run against his boss for the job. All right. So, and, and, and the way Wisconsin is set up is you, you can do that. So he challenges his boss. He runs in a Democratic primary against the DA. Follow me. And he ends up losing. So then he goes back to the DA's office. And this obviously you, you have. This kind of causes a rift because then you have the district attorney who's looking at one of his assistant district attorneys and obviously considers him to be disloyal. This guy ran against me, etc., etc. So at least according to Jambois, who was the assistant district attorney, what happened was the DA and some of the higher ups decided to essentially screw him over in retaliation for running uh, against him. The the lawsuit alleges that Ozan's staff, this is the DA, shifted a number of jury trials onto his calendar after identifying these cases as the most difficult in the caseload of a departing district attorney. So what he alleges they essentially did is said, Okay, we're gonna shaft him. So what we're gonna do, we'll teach him to run against the district attorney, or we'll try to force him to quit because what we're gonna do is we're going to take, you know, all these difficult cases and these complex cases, and, and we're going to we're going to give him, we're going to give him to Jambois. We're going to essentially, the argument is punish him for running against the boss. So what happens is Jambois turns around and he files a lawsuit seeking two and a half million dollars, saying, hey, my rights are being violated, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the case was settled, and it was settled by paying... Jambois, three hundred and fifty thousand dollars, three hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Now, what is infuriating about this is I don't, I don't take any position on the merits of this case one way or or the other. But the DA is apparently they're saying, well, you know we you know we ended up doing this because it was just a way to kind of get out a little bit cheaper here, and and there, there's no agreement that we didn't we did anything wrong. We were prepared to, you know, uh, again, defend ourselves. But once, once he agreed to settle for $350,000, we decided to, to take it. Okay, well, again, only when you're playing with taxpayers' money is, gee, I violated the rights, although I'm not admitting it, of one of my assistant district attorneys. I'm giving him $350,000, or actually the taxpayers are giving him $350,000. Isn't this great? You know, he doesn't want $2.5 million. He's willing to settle for $350,000. This is great. Well, all right, this is one of these situations where it seems to me either you violated the guy's rights in the way you ran the district attorney's office or you didn't. If you didn't, he shouldn't be entitled to a dime. If you did, well, then you should be out on your butt. But because it's not his money... He gets to settle $350,000 of taxpayer money, goes to an assistant district attorney, and the guy who is responsible for the 350 dollars being shelled out is still in office. Huh. It's 2.36, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, so very glad to have you with us. Let's see, the first time in history the leader of North Korea could come to America. What would that mean for the United States? A local expert weighs in. Tune in today, 5.20, on Wisconsin's Afternoon News. All right, here is the story. It happens last Thursday afternoon in Cicero, all right, the home of Al Capone. All right, here's the the story. A licensed concealed carry holder gets involved in shooting at a man who was engaged in a gun battle with the Cicero police. All right. Here's apparently the way they describe what happened here. All right. Um, the happens about five o'clock in the afternoon. Cicero police try to stop a car on the street. The driver speeds off, how often have we heard that story, and the officers box in his car on on an exit around the freeway. So the guy tries to flee, and the officers are able to block his, his travel. What happens is the driver then gets out of the car, pulls out a gun, and starts shooting at two officers. The officers then start chasing him. And he fires at another officer. He ends up hitting one officer a couple times. So you have this guy who's involved in a running gun battle with the police. All right. Then there's a guy, citizen with a concealed carry license, who is driving on the road, who sees this happening, sees the guy shooting at the cop, sees the cop shooting back. He's a concealed carry holder. He gets out of his car and he fires on the bad guy. Now the bad guy is hit. They're not sure right now whether it was one of the officers or whether it was the concealed carry holder who, who shot him. But as a result of, of this, the, the bad guy, um, is, is disabled. Okay. The, the shooting ends. It's, it's stopped. So one officer, in the hospital with gunshot wounds as a result of what the bad guy did. Bad guy in the hospital with gunshot wounds. And now you've got the concealed carry holder who decided to, again, intervene. And because because he intervened, he at least helped subdue this threat. Well, here's where it's interesting. The town officials are lauding this guy as a hero. That guy was a hero, this could have been so much worse. You could have had other police officers that were shot. You could have had citizens that were shot. This is terrible. On the other hand, you have some of the folks who uh, again deal with this carry seal carry issue saying, all right, this, this is not, this is not how you deal with violent crime. And you should just let the police do their thing. Don't get involved. Because even though in this particular case all's well that ends well, by getting involved you become sort of a vigilante, and you could make matters worse. All right, so four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That is the AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text line. Town officials are saying this guy's a hero. The police chief is saying this guy is a hero. There are some in the community saying not so fast. He could have made a situation worse. This would have been just much better if he would have stayed in his car and let events transpire. So, hero or out-of-control vigilante, what do you think? Four one four seven nine is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text 9. I'll tell you where I come down on this, and we will discuss in just a minute. But, all right, what do you think about the concealed carry holder sees this all going on? It is a running gun battle between a bad guy who's now on foot and the cops, a cop has already been shot. He gets out and shoots the bad guy. And again, they don't know if it was his bullet or one from a police officer that took down the bad guy. But might probably might have been his. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Did the concealed carry holder go too far? All right, back with more in just a minute. If you're on the line, please hold on. Two forty one. Jeff Wagner. W T M J. <laughs> Two forty-five. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. If you're just tuning in, here's the deal. L- last Thursday afternoon, about five o'clock, Cicero, Illinois. The police try to they try to stop somebody. Guy takes off. They block his way, so he can't get out of the car. He, he can't drive the car anymore. He gets out of the car. This is the bad guy I'm calling the bad guy with a gun. Starts shooting at two police officers. Don't know why. He just starts doing it. Hits one of the police officers a couple times. The officer is going to be okay. That's the good story. He's then chased on foot by a couple other police officers. And it's kind of this running gun battle. All right, the scene switches to a man who's driving the other way. He's a concealed carry holder. He's got a gun. He sees this all transpire. His car is stopped in traffic. He grabs his gun. He gets out of traffic. He shoots the bad guy and takes him down. Now, again, we we don't know if it was the shot that he fired or a shot from a police officer, but he definitely fires a shot. They take down the bad guy. Local officials say he's a hero. Others are saying, wait a second, we don't want concealed carry holders getting involved in situations like this. What do you think? Mark in Menominee Falls. Mark, here on WTMJ. Good afternoon.
3: How are you doing, sir?
0: I'm good. What do you think?
3: I think the guy's a hero. I think he's a hero. Um, Obviously, it was a threat. Uh, Deadly force had to be deployed. Uh, The guy's basically the guy, the assailant's lucky he's still alive.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, let me change the facts on you just a little bit, Mark. Let us say that the guy gets out of his car, shoots, and instead of hitting the bad guy, he misses, and there's a, a lady pushing a bar, bar, baby carriage you know, on the sidewalk uh, 50 feet behind this, and he hits her. In that case, are we having a different conversation?
3: Well, I guess, um, but that's not the way it went down. Right. I mean, I'm sure that the guy probably had a a clean shot and he took the shot if, uh, you know, if a meteorite would have struck his arm and and, the same thing could have possibly happened. But the fact of the matter was the guy deployed deadly force when it was necessary. Right.
0: Right. Okay. thanks. And and I I, I mean, I agree from a legal perspective under these circumstances, rendering assistance to a police officer and the guy who goes down is the bad guy. I I don't think that there's certainly, in my opinion, no legal liability, but I just throw this out there. I mean, it, it is, all right, in this case, it's all wells, all's well that ends well, except for the bad guy. All right. And none of us are going to be too terribly sympathetic to him. The, the, I guess the question is, if you change the facts a little, he misses the bad guy and again hits, in my example, the woman pushing the baby carriage, who's kind of in the background. If there was a woman pushing the baby carriage, um, does that change the, the dynamic? Let's talk to, um, Brenton in Wauwatosa, here WTMJ. Yeah, good afternoon, sir. How you doing? Hi, I'm well, thank you. What do you think about all this?
3: Uh, I got a two-part line of you, screener. I think that he was right for assisting the officers at one point, but the name would be, if, we, like you just said, if he had to hit somebody else or he, something else went wrong and he was being held liable now that he pulled out a concealed weapon. Because my thought was always that a concealed weapon was to protect the individual person. Mm-hmm. At the same time, any immediate danger within the area, he could have probably stopped them by driving his vehicle and stopping them, bar- barricading them in, or somehow. And at the last resort, pulled out his weapon. But I don't personally own a weapon. I do know how to use one. Uh, prior military service, mm-hmm. but I choose not to use one. But if that was me in that situation, I think I would have helped the officer. I honestly, right. would have probably helped the
0: officer. Yeah, no, thanks, and I think you know, Brenton. I think a lot of people that—that's how they're going to end up coming down on this. And, and by the way, I think the guy's a hero too under these circumstances. But having said that, and and I, I think legally he was entitled to do this because you're entitled to use deadly force essentially to to protect yourself or to protect somebody else. And, and when you have see somebody uh, again firing under these circumstances, I, I think. It's going to be tough to argue that that you weren't justified in in doing this if it's an ongoing scene. But but this is this is the the problem that's out there when you make this decision to intervene. All right, now you're firing, and and what happens? What happens if there, there's a third party that gets involved here? Would we be having the same conversation if he had shot somebody other than the bad guy, Lamar? Lamar, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon.
3: Hey, uh, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, sir. Um, I agree that all is well that ends well. this should not be encouraged uh for a few reasons it it, it it. if the if if someone sees officers engaging with an active shooter,
4: <coughs> excuse me,
3: and they go to assist and they pull the gun and the officer does not they don't know that you're there to assist yeah and 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 you get shot or if the if it's another cover situation like uh they get, there's an example that I' give in in concealed carry class of uh, an, a guy breaking into a car snatch the baby out and then shooting the driver mm-hmm. and they asked us how we would respond of course we all thought yeah we would assist at that point you could still care weapon and then you know the facts come out that there was another cover officer the, the the person driving the car that was trying to kidnap the kid there's so many different variables that the average person is not trained to deal with um including not you know being knowing when to take the shot and not hitting somebody else that this could have ended up much much worse and so yes in this case he's a hero but This should not be encouraged.
0: What do you think all. you do? Let's say that's you. You're you're in this guy's shoes. You're watching this unfold. You've got your you've got your gun in the car with you. What do you think you would do?
3: I wouldn't have engaged. Okay. I, I, I would not with, with law enforcement. I would not engage. It's too there's too much liability. I don't want you know to hit someone. Number one, I don't want law enforcement to mistake me as maybe trying to assist this person. just is I leave that to the trained professionals. If I'm in imminent danger, right, I'm I, I'm going to act. But if not. I'm
0: not going to react. I'm not going to act. No. Okay. Thanks. It's something. And again, I bring this up because I find it interesting. I I don't. I, in my opinion, recovering lawyer here. I I don't think there's any sort of criminal liability. I I do think you change the facts just a little bit, and you can have a, a completely different sort of of reaction to it. I don't think the guy's a vigilante. I think, especially given the way this whole thing unfolded, it, it's it's clear that this is a legitimate shooting. Now, having said all that, the other reality of this is, I, I think, if you're carrying a gun, you still, I mean, you want to be careful in, in making that decision to get involved in something that you're not that that you're not directly impacted by. Now, again, un, under the law, you can use deadly force to, if you're faced with deadly force or somebody else is faced with deadly force, but if I don't know how much the guy saw. And I do think, I think Lamar is probably onto something. Do I think the guy is a hero? Yes. Am I concerned about liability or anything like that? No. But at the same time, I, I think you want to make sure you have a, a good grasp of the facts as to what's going on before you decide that you want to, you know, weigh in. Uh, so, uh, and I don't think there's going to be any charges against him. And I, I don't think he's a vigilante, but I think it all works out well. There is, before we bring in John McCure, I want to just comment on on one other story. There is, in my opinion, a special place in you-know-where for people who decide to take advantage of the misfortunes of others. We talked earlier on this program about the, the, the devastation that's going on in the Carolinas, particularly North Carolina, as a result of Hurricane Florence. Not so much the hurricane winds, but the fact that it's just dumping an incredible amount of water you you have certain communities like i think i was reading wilmington you can't even get there i mean some of the communities are are just underwater roads are washed out you've got massive flooding it's going to be hundreds of millions of dollars in damage maybe more than that so you you have people who are looking at protect potentially losing everything and then you have the 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 bottom feeders the 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 pond scum and there's two kinds of c- pond scum there's the there's the kind of crusty brown stuff on the top of the pond and then there's the squishy green stuff on the bottom of the pond you never want to be the squishy green stuff but it's this the squishy green stuff is out there and and they're they're looting they're they're going into people's homes they're going into stores and and they're taking stuff and so now i mean the authorities have it's gotten to the point where authorities are saying listen you know, we we don't have a merge You know, we we understand this is a crisis. But if we're able to identify you and we catch you being involved in in looting, um, we're we're just going to drop the hammer on you. And I guess I, I, I certainly agree with that. That's kind of that's clearly what you have to do. But it's like, what sort of people are out there that decide that when when somebody's at their lowest, here's this opportunity. Gee, I've always wanted this or that or the other thing, so now. People are dealing with the flooding. These homes are vacant or whatever. Let's go on in and let's try to steal whatever we can. Anybody caught looting? No, I don't think they should be shot, but they should certainly be sent to prison for a long period of time. All right, 254, when we come back, we're going to find out what John Mercure has on his mind on Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Please stick around.